You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning. As always, good good to see you. And do I look different? You look retired. <laughs> yep. I retired yesterday, so today is a new chapter in my life. We've all got plans for your new chapter. That's right, everybody does. I'm going to quit telling people because everybody starts a lecture on me on what to do. Yeah, I'm thinking. And there is life after Sandler. Yeah, okay. Well, good. I'm quite sure I hopefully will do some meaningful things, but. Uh, you know, my wife here, Beverly, and I have been blessed with many good things, and we still have our health, and we're grateful for that. And, yeah. uh, so there's still many good things ahead, I hope. Yeah. But about what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of said that to young people with PhDs, and they're like, "Yes, thank God." <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a horrible feeling. I mean, you're so highly prepared and trained for something, and there's no chance to work for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was given a chance. Providentially, a door was opened, and I was incredibly grateful for that chance. Well, this is the last of the sessions here that we have been looking at with Jesus and. You know, we looked at Jesus and evil. We looked at Jesus and sickness, and we looked at Jesus and women. Jesus describes in the Pharisees, and today I want to talk about Jesus and death. Uh, it's obviously a big topic. If you if you look at it, the the Gospels are really a story about his death, and they because that's the culmination of it all. It's all aimed towards a particular to- story, and that is that Jesus was crucified and dead, and the third day he was raised again from the dead, uh, and so. I think it's necessary for us to truly and fully, hopefully, understand Jesus' relationship to death is to pursue the question, why die? Why did Jesus have to die the way Jesus did for the gospel uh, to be told, for redemption to be real and enacted? Why did Jesus have to die? I, When I was in graduate school, I had a professor, and he, one of the... Three or four professors in my life that had major influence on my life. And good morning. He um, uh, he was Jewish. Uh, wasn't as they say practicing Jew. He was ethnically Jew, even though he had been reared in a an active practicing Jewish family. So he's very very aware of religious life. And quite honestly, he had a lot of respect for religious people. Not all academics do, by the way. Uh, but he did, and I appreciated him, and he had big influence on me. And I remember one day we were just sort of visiting, and he he raised this question. He asked this question. He said, uh, you know, I, I can never really understand in Christianity why Jesus had to be a sacrifice on the cross. He could never really understand that. And he was a smart and reflective man, and so he had given it some thought. But he did admit, though, this, that it's central to the Christian faith. It really is. If we don't rightly understand why Jesus had to die on the cross, then we're going to miss, really, the story, the power of Christianity. And so it's very, very central 
to what we understand what God has done in Christ. All right, to do that, I'm going to sort of back up here and talk a little bit about death. What is that? Uh, and the different ways in which death is described in the scriptures. And then we'll move into some portions of the New Testament and look at how Jesus saw his own death, his own. Now, uh, th this is a truism. It's, it's something we all know, though we may not, even though if, you know, the older I get, the more I have to pay attention to this, under, you know, reflect much upon what it is. I mean, you have to be alive to die. Okay, we've well, got that. All right. Uh, you're not going to die if you've never been alive. And so to be alive then means that there is death waiting for the rest in the future. And it also means that one time we did not exist. Because, you know, if you think I lived eternally in the past, then if it's eternal, there is no end to it. So you'd be eternal in the future as well, which means you would never die. So if, if I'm going to die, then I was also at a time brought into being. So life is that which is be between that time that we did not exist, and then that time in which we'll no longer exist as we are right now, biologically, socially, and so on. So death in that sense is, is just a natural part of our finitude, of our existence. And if you go back to the creation story, you know, we're made out of dust. There in Genesis chapter 2, God breathes in us, gives us life, and we become a living being. And so we are dependent upon the breath of God. We don't, we don't make ourselves live for eternity. There's no power within us to cause my life to be. I manage my life. I don't cause my life to be. God gives us our life. And we're made from dust. And if you think about it, if you remember, once Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they were expelled from the Garden of Eden and God gave curses to Adam and Eve, none of the curses were that they were to die. The curses given to Eve is that she would... Uh, you know, suffer in childbirth. Secondly, her husband would rule over her. Did you know that? That your husband <laughs> ruling over you is a curse. Uh, that is a curse. Uh, I have to admit, it's a little difficult to understand. My hunch is that probably what it means is that uh, your husband should not be your God. <laughs> Don't let your husband or your marriage be the most important thing in your life because it will not bring you fulfillment. We find our fulfillment only in the redemptive work of God. And then the curse upon Adam, the man, was that by the sweat of his brow, he would labor all his day. He'll never fulfill himself by his work. Never. We can work as hard as we want to. We can never finally get to that point that I'm completely content and what I'm supposed to be before God. And then the whole earth, according to Genesis, cursed because of what Adam did. Men bear responsibility for the corruptions of the world. But in none of those is death considered a curse. So I think in, in a way, now I know others will argue with me on this, but I think I'm right on this, is that in a sense we're finite, we're not infinite, we're temporal, we're not eternal. And when we were made, we were also made to return to dust, because that's what we came from. Now of course in the Garden of Eden you know there's the tree of life, and we can take of that. But that's a gift given to us, it's not a natural state. God gives us our life. Okay. So in that sense, death is just natural. Now we find in Scripture that there are a lot of very tragic and unfortunate deaths, just a lot of them. Uh, for instance, uh, the first king Israel, uh, of Israel, uh, Saul, you know, took his own life. He had had some run-ins with David and he became paranoid and uh, Samuel cursed him and he eventually killed himself. He died prematurely in a sense. 
he didn't die naturally in that way. He took of his own life. He sort of cut his natural course short, and that's a tragedy or a misfortune. And that happens to all you know people who die too young, people who die by accidents. You know, we were created by God, I think, to live a natural course of life. Sometimes that's cut short, and that's tragic and, and unfortunate. Now, we do find in the Old Testament that there are people who live long lives, and that is considered to be a good thing when they die. For instance, the three patriarchs. Abraham was 175 years old when he died, and it said he died a good old age. It was good at that age, and he died. That was a good thing. It wasn't a tragedy. It wasn't something unfortunate. His son Isaac lived 180 years, and when he died, the text says he was gathered to his people, like he's come to his purpose in his death. Here his death was a fulfillment of his life in a way, not, not a rejection or an abnegation of it. And then uh, Jacob lived 147 years, and like his father Isaac, it was said he was gathered to his ancestors. Well, these patriarchs represent what one could call a good death. They've lived a long life, and they're at the stage in which they're going to die, they see a completion, a fulfillment to the life. So in that sense, you know, there's tragic death when the natural course is cut short. Then there is the full course of life, which is considered a good death. And, you know, I, I pray all of us have a good death. You know, I hope when I turn 90, I play golf that morning, go home, take a nap, and next thing I know, I'm, you know, in eternity. <laughs> that's what I hope. Uh, I wish we could all have something like that. And that would be dying in the good of my years, just like Abraham. I mean, I, 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 I can't pray to live for eternity. I cannot do that. Why? Because I'm made of dust. I'm fine. Okay. So there's tragic death or unfortunate death. Then there's natural good death. And then there's a third kind of death. And this is, this is the troubled one. This is the one that Jesus deals with the most. And that's the death of a sinner the death of a sinner. I will die naturally, but the death of a sinner is different than just dying naturally because the death of a sinner is a person who is in rebellion against God, has corrupted their lives, who because of either personal or social or collective uh, perversion, distortions, rebellion, blasphemies, idolatries, all these things that corrupt the human soul, that when I die, I die as a sinner and therefore I'm under the judgment of God. In that sense, death is unnatural. It's unnatural. I'm not supposed to be in rebellion against God. God did not create us to corrupt and pervert our souls. And when we die in a state of sin, then we are under the judgment of God. And that's unnatural. We were not designed or willed by God to die that way. All right, in a minute I'll come back to that. And so I think generally from Scripture we can see that there are three kinds of deaths. One, there's the, the natural death. Two, there is the tragic or unfortunate death. And then three, there's the death of the sinner, which is the unnatural death. All right. Now, uh, you know, when we uh, look at the life of Jesus, we, we saw that on many occasions he healed all kinds of people. And it was very uh, important and uh, one of his aims to go around and do healings for people. Uh, sickness was not what God desired of these people, the blindness, the deafness the leprosy, the demonically possessed. And so it, Christ went in many places to heal them. Uh, however, though, 
There are only three instances in which Jesus resuscitates people from the dead. Only three. Uh, what did I say? I think 37 accounts of miracles. Well, you know, healing miracles, probably two-thirds of that, around 20-some-odd accounts of healing miracles in the Gospels, but only three of resuscitations. Of resuscitations. Um, two of them are of tragic deaths, I would say. Uh, one is that Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son and then raises Jairus' daughter. They were young children. And Jesus raises them from the dead. Now, they eventually die, so it's not a resurrection. Resurrection, when you come back to life and never die again. Resuscitation, you come back to life and you will die again because you're a natural. We're all still in that natural state. And the other resuscitation is of Lazarus. And that's only recorded, by the way, in the Gospel of John chapter 11. Now, what's interesting in these three accounts is Jesus' response to the ones that have died. When he hears from Mary and Martha that Lazarus had died, it says Jesus wept. When he heard of the widow of Nain's son's death, it is said his heart went out to her, to the widow. And then when he heard of Jairus' daughter's death, he told the people, don't be afraid, just keep trusting. What we see in those three instances is the compassion, the, the sensitivity, the uh, love, the, 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 the willingness to do whatever it takes to care for people. So those three acts of resuscitation with Lazarus, widow of Nain's son, and the Jairus' daughter is a sign of Christ's compassion for people who have suffered tragic deaths. That's how I kind of look at this. What distinguishes those from other natural deaths? I mean, even though there's not much, I, I, I could be wrong in this, but I don't recollect a lot of incident or any instance in when Jesus was dealing with people who were dying old of age. Anyone remember anything? Jesus dealing with anyone dying old of age. I don't think so. I don't think Jesus ever saw that was part of his mission is to keep people always alive. To prevent natural death. I don't think it is. In these three instances with Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, and the Jairus' daughter, what we see are tragic deaths. So the same motive that he had towards healing like the blind and the lepers, he has now towards the resuscitation. It wasn't a denial of their natural course of life because they would eventually die. It's not that Lazarus all became a god because Christ raised him from the dead. But this was a sign of his power, compassionate care for these three people, that tragic deaths are, are not natural. And that I, in, that, in that sense, I think it's perfectly reasonable and consistent with our faith to pray and beseech to the Lord to overcome these tragedies that happen to people when, when the young die too young, when, when people's lives are cut off, when they haven't had the chance to live a long, fulfilled life and be content with the bounty of what the Lord has given us. That I don't think we're, we're asking something contrary to what Christ showed to Lazarus, the widow name, and Jairus in doing that. It's to pray for resuscitation for those who are experiencing tragic death. Uh, and Christ grieves for these two people. I'm grieves for these people. Uh, but what what I want to turn our focus on is Jesus' own death. Why did he 
choose to die the way he did die? Why did he do that? Now, to help explain that, and we're going to have to be you know, attentive, I think, to some of the ways in which Jesus speaks about his forthcoming death, to properly understand it, uh, I want to make a distinction between two Greek words that we translate as death. One of them is necros. You know, we have an English word called necrophobia, fear of corpses. Necrotic. Sorry? Necrotic. Yeah, Necrotic that's right. Dead. What that means is just a corpse. That's what it means. Necros is just a corpse, something without any biological life. In a way, if we all, in a sense, live long enough, we all have necros. We're, we're, it, it lies ahead for all of us. That's our natural death. And I hope all of us, like Abraham, die a good old age. But the end of all that, then, will be the cessation of our biological life. And that's necros. The other word that is used to translate death is thanatos. And it has some derivatives to it in the New Testament. Sometimes a preposition will be attached in front of it. But we translate that as death as well. It has a different meaning, though, than just necros, that is, biological death. It's more than just being a corpse. Thanatos has a spiritual, moral connotation to it. It's to be alienated. It is to be fallen into despair. It is to be in a sense of hopelessness and helplessness, as though you were dead. It is to be so separated from God that there is a, you know, a despair and dread and a sense of defeat about one's life. It's an alienated life. You can be alive but dead to the Lord. You can be biologically alive but dead towards other people, spiritually dead, so to speak. Well, uh, Jesus, interestingly enough, experienced both of those, both necros and thanatos. Now, I, I, you may want to push back on me on this, and, and I've, I've been pushed back on this, and, and a lot of people's theology just has a very, uh, have a very difficult time in understanding that Jesus really did die on the cross. Really did die. Now, in the Gospel accounts, there is very serious, concentrated effort to say that Jesus really did die on the cross. In all four Gospels, it mentions when he is on the cross that he was killed and that he gave up his life or he gave up his spirit, that he became a necros, he became a corpse on the cross and was buried and for three days was in the tomb, that he really did die. Now, as I said, some people have a hard time accepting that. How can the Son of God die like we die? How is that possible? Now, I'm going to argue that that's the core of our faith. Because Christ was fully divine and fully human. Anything that we experience as humans, Christ experiences what? Why is that? Our faith says, just like the Nicene Creed says, He was made of a woman. He was born of a woman. He was a human being, just as I am human being. And therefore, as the Son of God, the Word made flesh, Christ experienced all that the flesh experiences, even necros. And the New Testament stresses that. But as the Son of God, though, there's something else going on than just His biological death. 
And we're going to see that in just a second here. And so I think it's absolutely pivotal to our faith, central to our commitment uh, to the great confessions of faith, to say that Jesus really did die on the cross. That it wasn't just kind of a fainting. Uh, early in the development of the Christian church, there was a lot of opposition to that idea, primarily from uh, a group of people that you could call Gnostics. That's a big umbrella term that refers to religious movements that separated the spirit and the body of Christ. They're two separate things. They're not one thing. You know, the, the Orthodox faith, that he was one person, two natures. Not two natures. I mean, not two persons. One person, Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine. But Gnosticism separated the two. And so, when the Gospels talked about Jesus dying on the cross, that was a metaphor. He really didn't die on the cross. That he, uh, in fact, there was this rather bizarre, fanciful theory that Jesus, in those years before he started his public ministry, learned some secret occultic rites that he could sort of stop his heart and it would look like he would be dead. And so when, he, uh, when they took him down from, this from the cross, in a way he was dead because he had stopped his heart. And then inside the tomb he turned, I don't know what he did, but he turned it back on and he got up and walked out. And why would anyone ever want to think that? Because the spirit and the body are exclusive. And in our orthodox faith, we don't think they're exclusive. We think they're inclusive in one being. Fully human, top to bottom. Fully divine, top to bottom. And so, the Gospels writers were very, very keen on making that point clear. That Jesus really did die on the cross. Suffered all things that people in the flesh also suffer. But there's something else that goes on. Uh, and this is, I think, the Gospel story about the death of Jesus. Jesus doesn't die just the death of of a natural old age. He doesn't die just the tragic death, though it was a tragedy, but he also dies the death of a sinner. He died the death of a sinner. In fact, it says in a number of places here that, um, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 21, he was made to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus never willed to be sin, but he bore the sins of the world. Even though Jesus did not reject God the Father, he was not in rebellion against God the Father. He was totally in compliance with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. One in substance with them. However, though, the mission of Jesus, the reason why Jesus became incarnate, was to bear the fate of sinners. You may have heard this. Some of you have heard me in other places. I think I've quoted this maybe a time or two here. Luther once said, Do you know who the greatest murderer ever was? The greatest adulterer that ever lived? It was Jesus Christ. Because he bore the guilt of all murder, all adultery, all rebellion against God. That I will die as a sinner. And in a sense then, when I die as a sinner, I'm under the judgment of God. And that's not natural. That's not natural. Jesus chose to die that unnatural death. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Also in chapter 
5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says that uh, he died for all, therefore all have died. Kind of interesting. You'd, we would sort of naturally think it would be the other way. Since all have died, he died. What, what Paul says, though, he died for all, therefore all have died. The key to that verse is the word for death. It's the word thanatos, not necros. Jesus died for the guilt of all people. Therefore, all people are guilty. Interesting logic. Jesus bore the sins of each one of us here and everyone that's ever been. Which means then, all of us die the death of a sinner. All of us die the death of a sinner because Jesus died that death on our behalf. And so at death, as the death of a sinner, I meet the judgment of God. But what Christ did is that he took that death upon ourselves and bore that judgment himself. That's the significance. And this is, you know, I've mentioned three kinds of death. The natural death, tragic death, and the, um, uh, the death of a sinner. Now I'm adding a fourth death, and this is reserved only for Christ. None of us can do this. And this is the death of redemption. He redeems sinners, which means all of us are sinners. And his death is unique. I cannot, my death cannot redeem me. At my death, I bear my judgment. But because Christ died on my behalf, that I might be made the righteousness of God, his death is a redeeming death. And the point that I want to make is that Jesus knew that to be the case from the very beginning. He knew that to be the case. I want to look at three different episodes in Jesus' life to try to make that point. That Jesus saw what he was going to do was to die the death of a sinner so that by redemption, those who would be dead in their sins would be given life with God. The first one is found in Mark chapter 8. A uh, little background to this chapter. Well, I, I, I've done this before. There is no Bible map in a Bible library in a church. Figure that one out. Uh, but here we go. Okay, here's Jerusalem, Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, Caesarea Philippi is right up here. Uh, Jesus might have gone a little farther north than that, but that's about the northern peak of his, his travels. Well, while he was up there, he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And, you know, they say, Elijah, the prophet, John the Baptist. And then Jesus turns to them and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps right up and says, well, you're, you're the son of God. And then Jesus says, right. And then he says this. Then he began to teach them that the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders the chief priest and the scribes and be killed and dead. And the word there for dead is Thanatos. And after three days, rise again. So, in trying to clarify how he was the Messiah, trying to explain to the disciples what his mission was, he says to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to hand myself over, and I will die the death of sinner." That's what I'm going to do. And if you remember, what does Peter do after that? He says, no, you're not. We're going to stop you from doing that. And then Jesus, I don't think, and I mean, he's pretty harsh on the scribes and the Pharisees, no doubt about it. But he, 
his harshest words that he gives in all of his ministry, he gives now to Peter. Do you remember what he, he said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. It is the work of the evil one to prevent Jesus from dying the death of a sinner so that there can be the death of redemption. This was his mission. And all along, we'd seen previously to this, you know, the devil and uh, temptations was trying to entice Jesus away from his, his call. And many of those confrontations with the demoniacs, they were always opposing him. And now, through Peter, he is being opposed again. Jesus' mission was clear, precise, exact, profound in him. I'm going to die the death of a sinner so that there can be the death of redemption. All right. Okay, Jesus is north of Galilee. I'm not for sure how many days. I, I want to think something less than a week. I could be wrong on this. But, but he comes back down Galilee on that west side of Galilee. And we read this. Uh, this is Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. Not knock him out, not drug him, not make him, you know, delusional, but kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. So for the second time, he gives what people call the passion prediction. The, su the prediction of his suffering, passion. And it, it is a prediction of his death, that he's going to go and he's going to, to die. Well, notice what happens. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then when they came to Capernaum, which is just a little south of the Sea of Galilee. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? And they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down. And I can just imagine Jesus kind of just shaking his head. I've just told you for the second time what I'm going to do. I'm going to die on behalf of the world. And you're bickering about the greatest among you? You're not getting this, are you? That's my interpretation of this. He called the twelve and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. So who's the greatest? It's the servant of all. Why is the servant the greatest of all? Why? Why not the leader, the, the one in control, the dominant one? Which is what the world thinks. Rome thinks that. The Sanhedrin thinks that. But why would the servant? Because that's exactly what God is doing in Jesus Christ. As a servant, he will die the death of a sinner so that there can be the death of redemption. And the disciples misunderstand that. Even after clear instruction, they don't quite grasp that what's going on in the gospel. And I have to admit, I've probably been with them. I mean, it is, it is a paradoxical story, isn't it? That God could die on the cross? Think about it. That God would take on the sins of the world? I mean, it's God's business to condemn sinners. All of us who die 
unnaturally, that is, we die in our guilt, facing the judgment of God, we could say, just in strict terms of quid pro quo, tit for tat, balancing the scales of justice, that I've done the crime and I must pay for the crime. That all makes perfectly good sense. But Jesus comes and says, I'm going to pay for it. I'm the one who will die your death for you. You, you're not, you, you will die guilty, but you'll be raised exonerated. You'll be raised victorious because of what I do with you. And I'm going to do that because I'm going to give myself over to those in control. So who's the greatest then? Who really brings power and redemption to the world? It's the servant. And that's why he says, if you really understand what I'm doing, that's what you're going to be too. That real power is found in service, not dominance. Okay, Caesarea Philippi, just a little south there in Capernaum. And then we're now just outside of Jerusalem. And what we find is a similar account here. In Mark chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 32... They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And of those who have been to Jerusalem, you really do go up. It's a steep climb. Uh, Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was to happen to him. This is the third Passion Prediction. Saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Thanatos, condemn him to death. And um, then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. So for the third time, Jesus explicitly tells them, this is why I'm here. This is the fulfillment of my mission. This is my goal that is to die. And again, the disciples misunderstand this. John and James get in a quarrel about who is going to sit at Jesus' right hand. And uh, frankly, then it says in verse 41, uh, the rest of the disciples got angry at John and uh, James wanting to claim that exclusive right to sit at the right hand of Jesus in glory. And then Jesus says this, and this, in my opinion, is one of the most revealing passages in all of Scripture to, to explain why Jesus died the way he did. Right, verse 43, he says to the disciples, But it is not so among you. For whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Matthew and Luke do not have the word ransom. However, though, Matthew has the word to liberate. He doesn't use the word ransom. Luke has the phrase to serve, that Jesus is going to give himself over, and Matthew says to liberate many. Mark says to, have, to be a ransom for many. And Luke says, to serve many. I would say the same idea is on all three accounts. 
But the word lutron has a special meaning to it. Uh, the core of that word, the root of it is lut, yeah, I've already said ransom, the, the core Greek, the, the Greek word, which is the core of ransom, is lutron, L-U-T-R-O-N. There are derivatives of it, there with some prefixes and suffixes of it in the New Testament. But what a lutron is, interestingly, is the price that is paid to buy a slave. It's a technical phrase. I don't know. I, it seemed like growing up, we used to get books of stamps, you know, like a, you get all these, and you take them to, what was it, that Redemption place? Redemption Center. Is that what they were called? Redemption? Mm -hmm. Redemption Centers? So you got stamps. You just cannot walk in there and say, look, you know, I want a pair of shoes or something. You have to have something to buy those shoes. And uh, we had those books of stamps. Redemption centers, yeah, that's what it was called. Well, the word lutron has that kind of specific meaning to it. That is, it is the price paid to free someone, especially on, in slavery. That is, in slave markets, there would be the transactions going on, and if you know, I were to buy a slave, I'd pay it down, and that payment would be called a lutron, just like those stamps were called redemptions. Well, what Jesus, as, as I, I'm not sure what Aramaic word he used, but nonetheless, when it is recorded here by Mark, he uses that Greek word, lutron, to describe this. It is a special transaction. All right, Matthew, I think, helps us understand that. That is the price that Jesus paid, which was his death. It was a unique and special death. Unlike any other death, just like those stamps. You know, you couldn't go buy gas with them. You had to go to Sears or whatever to buy it. So it had a special task. Jesus' death had a special task, unique, without parallel or analogies. And what was that? And Matthew's explanation of to liberate. So what is Jesus' death liberating? Us from the death of being a sinner. Jesus' death bears the death of a sinner to liberate us, pay the price, bear the punishment of God so that we could be redeemed. Now, in my opinion, uh, one of the great books in the New Testament that tries to explain this and, and using some Old Testament metaphors to do so is the book of Hebrews. It is a serious book with a lot of detail. Chapter 9 in particular tries to understand the, de the death of Jesus in terms of the sacrificial system there at the temple. And uh, it goes through sort of, a, you know, if it works there in the temple, then surely it works for God. And he makes this point that in, in chapter 9, verse 13, 14, that the end result of that, that is the goal for Jesus dying as the way Jesus did, was to purify our conscience. Purify our conscience. Now, interesting word. Conscience usually is what? An indicator of our guilt, or our innocence. That is, it is an assessment of our moral state, isn't it? Now, children don't have consciences. They don't realize what a moral state is. If you've done something wrong, your conscience says, well, I've done something wrong. If you're, if you're innocent in something, then your conscience says, well, look, I, I'm innocent of this. My moral state is not guilty, or my moral state is guilty. The conscience is our, our capability to recognize how we stand in relationship to moral norms or whatever. 
but here in relationship to God. When I die the death of a sinner and I am faced with the judgment of God, my conscience is seared, is shamed, is uh, sickening. Why? Because I'm bearing the ramifications of being in rebellion against God. I'm bearing the punishment that is owed me. However, though, because Christ dies the death of a sinner and the death of redemption, I stand now before God with a good conscience. Even though I, were, I was guilty, but because Christ paid for my guilt, now my conscience is pure, as the book of Hebrews says. That was the goal of all this, for all of us to have right standing with God. That the reason why Jesus dies on the cross, why he bears this, not just necros, which is natural for all of us, not just tragic, which is unfortunate for some, but the death of a sinner, though, which is what waits all of us. The reason why he does that is to purify our conscience is to enable us to stand with gratitude and thankfulness and happiness and contentment and joy before our Maker, even though we've been the guilty one. Now, that's, that's the gospel account. And so, the re one, one second, right? The reason why Jesus chooses the death that he does, and just like my, my very influential professor asked me, I never understood why Jesus had died on the cross. The explanation of that is that so that all of us might be in right conscience with God. Yes, Ray. I was uh, wanting to get the reference on that conscience about the pure... Okay, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verses Hebrews 13 through 14. Yeah. Thank you. So that's why this is important for us. If any way we downplay I've got a couple of minutes before we have to stop. The, the death of Jesus, we are totally misconstruing, misunderstanding the gospel account. I remember, um, uh, I did not hear this directly to me, but it was told to me by someone else in that conference that we were in a theological meeting, and at the beginning of it, um, uh, someone offered a hymn, and it was, it's an old, I forget the author of this hymn, but it's an old revival hymn, Washed in the Blood of Christ. You probably have sung that at some time or another, Washed in the Blood of Christ. And this particular person afterwards, like I said, this was told me secondhand, he said, I don't believe in that slaughter bench, I mean that slaughterhouse theology. I don't believe in that slaughterhouse theology. That Jesus was just like some cow taken out of a feedlot and put on a bench and cut his throat. That guy saw what happened on the cross in the same way that he would see a cow slaughtered at a meat house. Totally misunderstanding the significance of Jesus' death. It's not a slaughterhouse act. It is the act of God enabling us to stand with a pure conscience before God. That's what it is. And because God does that as the Son of God, in the flesh, we know it is secure. If it were just me doing it, or what if we just, you know, you know, got Ray in here and put him on a cross and crucified him and said, hey, we're all right with God, I'm sorry, you're a great man, Ray, but that wouldn't do it. Or if God had just 
Now, this is where some people theologically will have to really wrestle with this. What if God just changed God's mind? Said, okay, you didn't do anything wrong. I'll forget about it. We would still die in our guilt. Our guilt had to be paid for, and the only one who could do it was the Son of God. Yes? I want to make sure I understand correctly. It's a beautiful thought that we clear conscience before Him now. That's right. Not just in that's right. That's right. Because He has died. That's right. In faith, we know we stand in pure conscience before God. Because when we die, we will not die the death of a sinner. Because Christ has paid for that sin. So, death be not... What's the, what's the end of that? Be not proud. We can face our death, even though it's horrible. And, and I know each of you has suffered horrible deaths. the way two tragic deaths that all of us have to face. And then, you know, the death of our parents and grandparents at one time, we all face those sort of things. And it, it's part of, I think, our human experience. And I'm quite sure that when Abraham died, Isaac cried. And when Isaac died, Jacob cried. And when my parents died, my father died too young. My mother died fullness of her years. I cried. Because it's the significance of life. It's the beauty that God has given each one of us, and we should appreciate it. And it's not wrong to feel the pains of losing things that are so precious and dear to us. However, though, we can face our death, though, with the confidence that we're not dying into oblivion, alienation, or eternal judgment because of what Christ has done for us. So death be not proud. Thank you. I appreciate you being here on these sessions. These are all great themes, great stories. I, I hope in some ways I've been able to clarify uh, the role of Jesus as our, our Lord and Savior. I'll conclude us with a prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, what can we say? Thank you. We're grateful. We're profoundly moved by what has been done on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for purifying our conscience, and may your peace and blessings be with all and with this church. This I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.